For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Grainger.com, or just stop by. Granger For the ones who get it done. The challenge is how do we convince clinical staff the terminating women's pregnancies at their request is the right thing to do? I don't think that's a challenge that we should shy away from. There are way more people who think like I do that, well, I would be prepared to do this. But I think that my colleagues must have the ability, if they seriously think that abortion is totally wrong, then they should not be compelled to, to do that. Hello and welcome to The Brendan O'Neill Show with me, Brendan O'Neill. This is a podcast in which an esteemed guest joins me to talk about the big ideas, the bad ideas, the problems and the controversies of life in the early 21st century. In this episode, I am delighted to be joined by Anne Faraday. Anne is the former chief executive of BPAS, the British Pregnancy Advisory Service, which is the UK's largest independent abortion provider. Anne has been working in the area of reproductive choice for many years before BPAS she worked at the Birth Control Trust and later the UK Family Planning Association. She's also been Director of Policy and Communications at the Human Fertilisation and Embryology Authority and has written widely on issues relating to health, choice and consent for numerous publications, including Spiked. She's the author of the brilliant book, The Moral Case for Abortion, which has just been republished as a second edition. So Anne, let's talk about your book, The Moral Case for Abortion, which is now in its second edition. And I guess the first thing I want to ask you as a way into this conversation is about the title of the book, because it's a very striking title. Simply having the word moral in a case for abortion is quite striking in itself. And if you look at the pro-choice argument, it's very often made in terms of necessity, women need this procedure, or it's made in terms of some people will say, look, it's not very nice, it shouldn't happen that often, but women really require this as part of their reproductive health. And of course, that's an argument you yourself have made as well. But if people rarely make a moral case for abortion. And in fact, morality is seen as the preserve of the other side of the discussion, the pro-life side, whose morals are seen often as getting in the way of women's ability to access this necessary procedure. So what? why did you feel it was important? What triggered you, so to speak, to, to think, right, I have to make a, a moral case for abortion rather than the ones that we traditionally see from pro-choice campaigners? Well, actually, it's exactly as you have just described it. And what um, really made me think about this was doing some work with a bunch of people who were putting together a pro-choice platform. And the M word, the moral word, that is this moral became a real point of contention uh, among the group uh, with people actually saying, well, can we not talk about ethics or can we not talk about justice? Um, 
when people think about moral, they identify it with the other side yeah. and or they identify it with Christianity or faith and we're not comfortable with it. And it really made me think about it a lot because one of the things that I'd felt for quite a long time was that a disadvantage that my side of the debate had was that we always seem to present abortion as a pragmatic necessity, mm. whereas the other side talked about pro-life values and the sanctity of life and, and, and stuff that always seems to trump the <laughs> pragmatic side of it. And it just simply occurred to me that we were not doing ourselves a favor because there is something to my mind that is both moral about debates concerning the embryo, but also moral about the debates concerning not allowing a woman to make decisions about her own body, not allowing her the freedom when she's pregnant to have the sense of moral autonomy and bodily integrity that she would have when she was not pregnant. And I just thought we need to start thinking about these things in terms of what's right and what's wrong. And that's really why I wanted to to pick it up. Uh, and I think that's actually why your book is so important. And it's reclaiming the moral case for uh, uh, abortion as part of a broader framework of self-determination, autonomy, the exercise of choice, the making of a choice, things that were traditionally seen as good things, but have been problematized in various ways over the past few decades. And, and one thing I wanted to ask you in particular, you've worked in the field of reproductive health for a very long time, including at the British Pregnancy Advisory Service. Um, so you are in a good position to have clocked how the arguments for choice and the arguments for abortion rights have changed over the years. And one thing that I've noticed as someone who is very much outside of this discussion, I've noticed the way in which there has been a quite striking shift from a pro-choice case and say, you know, you, you used to see people marching in the streets with placards that had the word choice on them. Women must have the choice, my body, my choice, those kinds of slogans were very common. And now it seems to be much more in the realm of reproductive justice and the kind of similarly to the way in which other left-wing ideas or uh, arguments have become colonized by the idea of justice so the abortion argument has too so how do you explain this shift that's taken place from choice to justice and explain to us what your problem with the idea of reproductive justice is because to most people that will sound like a nice phrase. You know, justice is a good thing. Uh, most people would like to see justice done. So why do you have a problem with the way in which it's shifted to that kind of realm? Well, I think that's a really big question. And I'll be completely honest with you and say that there are ways in which I am still really trying to work this one out. Yeah. Because one of the things in particular, when you start really trying to look at what is meant by reproductive justice, it's very easy to just disappear down a, a rabbit hole, uh, just trying to find out what people really mean by it. But I tell you what I think is a problem. 
and I think this takes us part of the way there. But for me, I would say it's it, there's a kind of work in progress about it. I think one of the first big changes, certainly in the UK, is that we've seen two things happen that have run side by side. Um, one is the notion of choice being uh, identified somehow with a kind of neoliberal right-wing positioning, perhaps at worst, or alternatively, as a kind of consumerist mm. thing, you know, that we, and the, the, the criticism is sometimes made that when we talk about a woman's choice of abortion, it gives people the idea that women are deciding on abortion or having a child in the way that they might choose a pair of shoes or they might choose what they're eating on a menu and so on. And so the, the, the notion is that it's somehow not a sympathetic thing for people to be identifying with. And so instead of talking about it being a choice, it's better to talk about abortion being a necessity that women are driven to have abortions and that it's not something that they have a control over. So it's not something that you do voluntarily. Now, the, the problem is with that is that whilst it's absolutely correct to say that, you know, I, the decisions that we make um, are not in the circumstances of our own choosing, and that sometimes we have to make decisions, I would say choices, about things neither of which are the thing that we actually want. It, there is still, I firmly believe, an important thing that women do decide and we can nitpick about whether we use the C word of choice or whether we use the deciding word. But at the end of the day, it's the same thing. We have some agency, we have some ability, even if you are facing a pregnancy where the child will not be born alive at the end of the pregnancy, some women will decide to end the pregnancy, others will decide to continue it for as long as possible. And it's a decision, it's a choice of sorts, even in that situation. So I think there's been a demonization and a misrepresentation of what we mean by choice. I think as part of this idea that abortion is a necessity, um, is the sense that it is, it's become lumped in with the idea that, well, it's just a health procedure and it's become absorbed within public health. It's a way of righting a health wrong. And that particularly happened in the late 1990s in Britain, where there was a massive scare about the safety of the contraceptive pill. Loads of women stopped taking the pill. The unplanned pregnancy rate went through the roof. I think it, it soared by about 12% in a quarter or something. And so it was very much accepted that those pregnancies 
um, were ones that women really needed to end. Mm -hmm. And that really was a point at which health services began to think about abortion as being a backstop, a a kind of a, a health provision. And then I think the next stage is when you have this is more in the United States, perhaps, this sense of the concept of progressive people working towards equity and justice as their aim. And this relationship between sort of justice being a way of giving people a, not equality, but a leg up to get what they actually need in, 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 in life. And so the whole notion of reproductive justice comes about really, I think, by saying women need reproductive assistance in their lives. The actual form that that may take may be different, um, but the justice is the justness and the equity in in allowing them to get what they need. And that some women might need abortion, some women might need infertility treatment, some women might need contraception, others won't. And then, as we've seen in the United States, then the racism element becomes censored because, and, and this is quite correct in identifying that white middle-class women's needs in the US have not been the same necessarily as poor black women. And poor black women have at times been encouraged to have abortions, whereas white women have been encouraged to have children. And so the whole thing gets really jumbled up. Whereas at the end of the day, For me, I would say the aspect of choice probably centers more effectively what any woman needs uh, when she's thinking about a situation with a pregnancy that she doesn't want, or indeed one that she's trying to achieve that she can't. But it's a different framework. I think the the way in which you've critiqued or, or taken up the idea of reproductive justice as a slogan has been incredibly interesting. And for me, uh, justice, the, the use of that word justice always worries me a little bit because obviously there are elements of agency within the justice system. You have an element of agency if you're facing the justice system, if if you're awaiting justice. But justice by definition is something that is delivered. It is something that is accorded usually by the deliberations of people who are more powerful than we are, who have more expertise, who kind of wield the hammer in in the courthouse. So justice is often something that is given to you or delivered to you or something that you await, whereas choice and autonomy and self-determination is much more the individual saying, this is what I need and want to happen, and I want to make sure that that is what happens. So I think the shift to the word justice, it sounds nice. It's one of those buzzwords. Everyone likes the word justice, but there's a bit of a problem there. Following on from that, I wanted to pick up on something you just said there, which I think is really interesting, particularly in the US context, and it might become more apparent in the UK too, which is the um, the role that is played by 
the idea of white privilege, the idea of identity politics, and this notion that white middle-class women are, uh, that choice privileges white middle-class women because they're in a better position to make those kinds of choices, whereas poorer people and people of colour may have more limited choices. Now, the thing that I find very frustrating about that, as you've just indicated, is that there is an element of truth there. People who don't have a great deal of resources or a great deal of power or a great deal of income often have more limited uh, ability to make choices about how their lives should be organized. But isn't there a problem with this idea that choice, it, what it ends up becoming is this idea that choice is something that largely only privileged people can make. Whereas when it comes to poorer people and people of color, it's be, they are incapacitated and therefore they need to have justice given to them. They need assistance. They need a leg up. So is there a class element here where you introduce these kinds of ideas into the, into the abortion discussion and it becomes much murkier than it ought to be? I think that's true. I think there's a peculiar side to it as well which is about how the sense of justice is understood. So you've highlighted that sort of formal sense of that justice is something that is handed down mm. and something that is separate from ourselves. And I think that the term justice is often used, again, in these situations very, very loosely because what you're talking about and what most of us think of when we think of justice is a just legal framework. Yeah. It's basically a framework where we all know what's going on. We're all subject to the same kind of legislation. You read about reproductive justice and you find that all kinds of things are wrapped up in it. Infertility is a mm. is has become a reproductive justice issue. Now, you know, there are some people who are perhaps infertile because they are denied certain kinds of treatments. But there are some people who are infertile who, frankly, it's a natural problem. Nobody can do anything about it. I've seen justice frameworks looking at infertility that talk about um, the unjust position that women are in when their partner doesn't want to have a baby, but they do. The whole thing just becomes a, well, women are in this dreadful position, so it's an issue of justice, as though there is this kind of loose magic. It's almost become to be justice means getting everybody into the same position, whether you can actually do anything about it or not. So it's almost become this kind of slightly strange world, I think. I think where the real problem with it is that the substitution of justice for choice becomes a real problem. The, to my mind, the absolutely most important thing about any reproductive intervention, the, the thing that makes it right or makes it wrong is about who decides. And that relies on a sense that there is a massive difference between whether you decide, you decide as an individual woman that you want an abortion or a doctor decides 
that you want an abortion or society decides that you should have an abortion. That is the difference between an individual being able to exercise control over their reproduction and eugenics at the end of the day. Now, for young black women who, particularly in societies that are encouraging the use of long-acting reversible contraceptives, if in certain areas of the country, in the United States in particular, young black women are being encouraged to have abortions, then frankly, the one thing that is the most important thing is to centre on their agency for them to be able to make a decision about whether they go down that route or not. And I think that therefore, to move away from the idea of the individual deciding to this sort of social construct of what society thinks is is right, really does scare the hell out of me. Because once you hand over to society deciding what's right, and you accept that there is something good about taking away that individual agency, then it's not a question of taking away power from the middle class and giving more power to the working class. It's basically taking away power from any individual to determine how their lives should be organized. And when it comes to decisions about who shouldn't, who shouldn't have babies or who shouldn't, who shouldn't control their pregnancies through abortion or birth control, I find that deeply terrifying. That's very well put. And I think one of the things that worries me most, as like you, I'm pro-choice, Spiked is a a pro-choice publication. And one of the things that worries me most about the shifting narrative or slogans or justifications in in sections of the pro-choice movement is that very often it echoes arguments that are made in the pro-life movement. So for example, what you will often hear from pro-life campaigners is that there is an abortion culture. And I was invited to give a talk at Oxford University a few years ago on abortion culture. I was going to say there was really no such thing. And the other speaker was going to say there is such a thing, but it eventually was banned at the behest of angry (laughs) students and all those typical problems. But uh, what struck me was this idea of an abortion culture. The, The engine behind that idea is that women aren't really in control of their ability to make choices. They don't really enjoy agency. There's this kind of overbearing culture that is pushing them to make these kinds of decisions. And you often hear this not just from traditional pro-life activists who have been making these arguments for a very long time, but also from the new moralists, I guess you could call them. There is a kind of a younger growing uh, group of uh, not particularly religious moralist thinkers who will often argue that there is a consumer dynamic to abortion. It's an easy choice. Women just discard fetuses in the way that they would discard a pair of shoes or a purse. You, You hear those arguments frequently. And it strikes me that some of the reproductive justice arguments, although they are obviously much more pro-women and are are geared towards women at 
least having the health ability to to access abortion services. It seems to me that they unwittingly reproduce some of those arguments by limiting the understanding that women enjoy agency and arguing that, in fact, many women don't. They, they lack the capacity to make significant choices, and therefore they need assistance, they need help, they need to be steered in this direction or that direction. So do you think there's, a, on both sides, there's a risk that one of the key aspects of the argument for choice, which is the agency of the individual and the right of the individual to control her life, that that's kind of been lost on both sides of this discussion? I think so, because I think the, the way that it, the way that it, quite often seems to be presented is that it's almost a a form of social determinism Mm. that we are driven by our life circumstances and that if you are from a poor background this is what you're driven into and if you're from an ethnic minority background, that is what you are driven into. And it completely takes away both the ability and indeed the responsibility of individuals to appraise their circumstances and make de- the best decisions for them. And one of the things that is really really so struck me um, when I was working at, at, at BPAS was the incredibly complex, nuanced sort of conversations that women have with themselves about the circumstances that they're in. And where I really do feel I have privilege is that I, I used to go to clinics and hang out in the waiting room because that was always the place where you'd pick up on any stuff that was going on, you know, and how, how patients there were feeling about it, whether they'd been kept waiting for a long period of time and all of that. And inevitably, I'd end up talking to, to women about why they were there. And the complexity of the stories is just extraordinary. And often that sort of sense of trying to balance up whether they would have the baby or whether they wouldn't, you know, have the the child is very finely balanced. And it really both changed my attitude to how I thought about abortion decisions. Because I think when I was simply involved in advocacy many years back, I had a much more black and white sense of women knew either one way or the other. They were either going to have the baby or they weren't going to have the baby when the pregnancy test showed positive. And I think what I really learned is how instead of it being very black and white, it's often a very nuanced shade of grey, depending on so many different factors, partners' attitude to it, you know, their physical circumstances, their, their other children and how they related to the other children in their family. And it really did make me appreciate that they are not driven 
into a situation by their circumstances. If you present two women with exactly the same income, education, housing situations, bastard boyfriend, loving husband, they will still make different decisions about things because of the way they balance that up. And we need to centre that. I think it's really important. Spiked is free and it always will be. There's no paywall and no subscriptions. We want to reach as many people as possible. But to do that, we need your help. If you support the work that we do, why not become a regular donor? As little as £5 a month is enough to make a huge difference. Whatever you can give is greatly appreciated, especially with all that's going on in the world at the moment. If you want to make a regular donation, then all you have to do is go to spiked-online.com and hit the red donate button in the top right corner. That's spiked-online.com and the red donate button in the top right corner. That's a very good point. And it kind of draws me on to my next question, because I think the, the complexity of, of women's moral decision-making in relation to the, the course of action that they take is, is a really important part of this. And I think one of, the, one of the points you have made very strongly over the years is that autonomy, the right to self-determination, the right to make decisions about your own life, also entails living with the consequences of your decision. And I would just want, I just wanted to ask you about moral consequences, because one of the things I find very valuable about the arguments you've been making is that you don't flinch from the moral consequences of abortion. And the moral consequence of abortion is that a fetus that would have become a human life is being extinguished and and the moral judgment that is being made is that the the right of a woman to enjoy dominion over her own body and to enjoy individual sovereignty carries more moral weight than the ability of the fetus to progress to the next stage of existence and i think that's such an important argument because i've heard um there are sections of the pro choice movement who will say well, you know, having an abortion is just like having a cyst removed. And I know what they're saying. They're saying it's a largely straightforward procedure, especially if it's done early. But I think it drains away what most women recognize, which is that there's, there's a very strong moral component and a very strong consequence to the decision that they are making. And similarly, I think on the pro-life side, there's often an unwillingness to grapple with the moral consequences of what they are arguing and the moral consequences of what of what they are arguing or what they would like to see happen is that women would unquestionably not enjoy equality to men. They would have a very different status in society if they didn't enjoy sovereignty over their own bodies. They would potentially be enslaved by nature if there was a, a, a severe restriction on their ability to control a pregnancy or to, to end a pregnancy. And I often find that when I speak to pro-life activists, which I have done many times, there's an unwillingness to grapple with the moral consequences of the points that they are making. So I just wanted to ask you about how important you think it is not to shy away from the consequences and the impact of the arguments we are making for greater freedom, greater choice, greater autonomy? I think we do have to grapple with it. And I think that generally, in, in various different ways, most women who have abortions do think about this as being a moral issue. 
you know, there are some who don't, and that's absolutely fine. Um, but I, and I, you know, I'm not suggesting that there's anything wrong with that, but I think that most women do. And in fact, women will often say that they feel surprised how they felt when they had a positive pregnancy test and they take a decision that they didn't think that they would take. And that goes for both sides. It goes for people who are absolutely anti-abortion who, when they find that they're pregnant, suddenly find themselves considering a whole load of issues that they hadn't thought about previously. Um, and also those who are avowedly pro the right to abortion and who thought that they would always end a pregnancy. And, you know, it's really funny that um, uh, often I've heard women do the thing where where they'll say, actually, I really want to have this baby. And often they use the baby word. Yeah. You know, they don't talk about a fetus or an embryo or what have you. They'll say, I really want to have this baby, but I, we just can't manage it at the moment because of my other children. And people forget that. They think about abortion in terms of teenagers and feckless single women not taking account of their contraception and, and, and so on. You, you know, half of the women you see at BPAS have got children already. Mm. And very often the reason why they are having this abortion is because they're run off their feet caring for the children that they already have. Now, the reason why I really do focus on this point is because I really do think that, you know, it is the woman who is pregnant, it is the woman who will go through the pregnancy, which frankly is... It's not easy, even when you want to have a child very desperately who will go through labour, but perhaps most importantly of all, will be probably raising that child, or if she's not raising it, living with the knowledge that she has handed that baby over for somebody else to rear. Or alternatively, it is the woman who will know for the rest of her life that things might have been different, that she could have been a mother in different circumstances and whatever. And it seems to me that that all of those things, all of those decisions carry with them a, a sense of responsibility that you are making a decision about not just your life. People get into this thing about, oh, it's also self-centered. It's also selfish. But you're not taking that decision just about you. You're taking it about all of the people around you, the people that you're close to, your existing family. Your decision is going to influence their lives as well as that life that would be born. And I had a, a really funny discussion. I, I, I hope he won't mind me mentioning it, but if he listens to the podcast, which he may well may, but Peter Hitchens and I yeah. did a debate in Oxford uh, uh, School, and he seemed really quite shocked that I had used the R word for responsibility and that I also acknowledged that I felt that the embryo fetus 
call it what you will, that I attached a huge amount of moral value to it because that generally wasn't what he thought people who were pro-choice would come from, that position. And I stand where I am because I do value having children so much, not in a kind of sentimental way of every child should be a wanted child, although I do clearly believe that every child should be a wanted child, but I honestly believe that what is, you know, in those early cells is a wondrous and awesome creation and the the decision about whether it grows into one of us or whether its life is ended is is a very serious decision to take and i think that most of us probably have a kind of what i call a presumption in favor of life yes. human life is a fabulous wonderful thing but not everybody's in a position where they can take a decision that that should go ahead at this time in this place or that they want to in these circumstances i think that bent towards life is actually very interesting and um i'm not surprised that someone like peter hitchens would have found it quite confronting and challenging because it might not be what he necessarily would expect from someone on the pro-choice side of the argument but before we move on just to get to the I guess, to the heart of this question, which I know you've spoken about a great deal over the years, and I've spoken about it too, to in a far more limited extent. But just that question of why, even though you recognize that that bunch of cells is something quite important and different and has an enormous amount of potential, even though you recognize that you still support a woman's right to extinguish it essentially so let's just uh, before we move on just focus on that for one second and mm. uh, which i guess cuts to the heart of the question of why one would be pro-choice one would why one would take this position and you for example have argued even in defense of later abortions in certain circumstances although they are very very rare because they are difficult procedures and most women make the decision far earlier than that that process so the argument essentially is, and this is one that I find very, very convincing, is that the problem here, the moral problem, the moral conundrum, is that the thing we're talking about, the potential, the, the, the potential for this new life, cannot exist without the sucker of the woman's body. And that's where it becomes, that's that's essentially the heart of this moral conundrum. And I think that's often the thing that the pro-life lobby tends to ignore. So during the abortion referendum in Ireland, which fantastically was one in defense of a woman's right to access abortion services, I saw lots of commentary from pro-life campaigners who were saying things like, women are dashing their babies against the rocks. Now, what that ignores, of course, is that you cannot dash a fetus against the rocks without also dashing the woman against the rocks. And I, th- and I think that's such a core part of this, and which is why that your treatment of this as a serious moral issue for, that deserves reflection and argument is so important. So that's the core of this, isn't it? The fact that this bundle of cells, nothing can be done to it without also interfering with a woman's, woman's individual self-determination and sovereignty. 
I think, Brenton, you've you've got it in one. I don't know whether you read the book or whether you <laughs> got there in another way. But no, that that really is the point, you see. And and, and the, the point is, is that people will say to me, it's like, well, what's the difference between abortion and infanticide? Surely for you and for AD, it's just a simple matter of geography. And the funny thing about it is, yeah, it is actually yeah, yeah. a matter of geography. People say there is nothing magical that happens as the baby is born, as it passes through the birth canal. It's broadly the same entity an hour before birth as it is an hour after birth. And of course, from the perspective of the baby, that is absolutely right. But, but, from the perspective of the woman, everything has changed yeah. because prior to giving birth, that life is inside her and nothing can impact on that life without impacting on, on her. Whereas once the baby is born, then you can have teams of pediatricians and nurses and social workers, whatever you want, acting to help that baby and she need not have anything to do with it. And, and that's the real difference. And the problem is, is, is that it becomes a discussion about whether you support abortion an hour before birth or not. But that is ludicrous. It's absolutely ludicrous because, you know, no one is going to be insisting that they you know, end the life of the baby in the last week of pregnancy. I have to say, without very, 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 very mm -hmm. good reason. But that's the way that it's presented. Whereas in fact, if you look at it from the point of view of the woman, it becomes very, very different because what you are saying when you prohibit a woman from ending her pregnancy is you're saying, because you are pregnant, your bodily integrity, your right to your body is taken away from you and undermined, and that your body is no longer your own. It is, it is a carriage for this fetus which is inside of you. And so it really matters. And just to put a caveat, on this because sometimes, you know, as I said, nobody would choose to end a pregnancy in those final weeks without good reason. And people will say, ah, oh, but in the statistics, there are some abortions that are done in these very, very late weeks. And I was really driven to look at that, to find out why it is mm. that that happened. And the reason why I put that caveat on it is because, you know, sometimes there are women who know that their baby will die mm. within hours of birth. It stands no chance of surviving outside, but they feel that they want to maintain their offspring's life as long as possible. And they actually work with the doctor to keep that baby alive in, 
inside of them for as long as possible. And that speaks to this point that I'm constantly making. We look at the figures, we make assumptions, we hear the word abortion, we make assumptions. What we really need to be thinking is how women choose to manage the circumstances that they're in and actually have the view that as individuals, we are not heartless monsters who are incapable of moral nuance. We do it all the time. You're listening to The Brendan O'Neill Show. If you like this podcast, be sure to subscribe so that you never miss an episode. With most providers like iTunes or Spotify, it's really easy to do with just one click. And if you get this show via YouTube, then make sure you not only subscribe to Spike's YouTube channel, but that you also click the bell so that you are alerted to every new episode. Okay, a few more questions. I want to ask you about some of the things we've been discussing about the shift away from ideas of choice and autonomy and um, self-determination towards reproductive justice and so on. I want to ask you how much you think that was built into the compromises that were made on abortion at the very beginning. So are there unresolved historical issues with a woman's right to choose? So if you look at the 1967 Abortion Act in the UK, for example, it was largely about bringing the informal abortion procedures that were taking place in society under the purview of the public health, uh, under the purview of the health service to ensure that it was a, you know, safe health procedure. And it was one that was caveated very much. You know, you had to get the agreement of two doctors. Um, It was something that was not really about freedom and choice and autonomy, but much more about a provision of a service in certain circumstances. And then if you look at Roe versus Wade in in the US in, in 1973, it was largely built around arguments of privacy, the right of a woman to make certain decisions without too much government oversight, too much government interference. I'm a bit loath to raise some of these questions because I think the 67 Act and the Roe versus Wade decision were incredibly important leaps forward for humankind in terms of uh, expanding freedom, expanding choice and and equalizing women in society. But do you think there's a, that some of the problems we, we grapple with today in terms of making the case for autonomy in this realm come from that historical compromise where abortion was legalized to a large extent, but it was done very much on, on the basis of health and public health rather than the right of the woman to make a choice about her life? I, absolutely. And I think that um, that's why, in fact, that now we are at a time in society where I think that we are developing new ways of, of, of thinking about abortion, actually partly because of the advent of medication abortion, abortion pills, which which do enable the termination of a pregnancy in in early pregnancy to be totally straightforward and as simple as the the, the taking of pills at, at home. It does challenge us to think about what kind of laws we really need because the laws that you're talking about, whether it's the 1967 Act or the Roe versus Wade decision in the United States um, in in the early 1970s were very much fueled partly by discussions about what it was safe 
to do. Yeah. And uh, very often abortion was really pulled into the medical dimension to make it safe. Uh, that was certainly the case in, in Britain. Now we're in a situation where we are thinking about whether the laws are fit for purpose. And um, certainly um, we need to go back to this discussion about who decides whether it's right or whether it's wrong um, for a woman to take particular actions. And I have to say it's absolutely paradoxical and probably typically annoying of me that precisely the time when so many people now in the United States are challenging Roe versus Wade and saying, oh, well, Roe versus Wade never really did what it was supposed to do, particularly for poor women who could never afford to get abortion care, I come along and I start saying, actually, there was something really profoundly excellent about Roe versus Wade. And what was excellent about the Roe versus Wade decision was that it much more centred the uh, protection of a woman's ability to make decisions outside of state interference. And in Britain, we're not really used to talking about privacy in that way. We think about privacy as being keeping things a bit secret to Mm. ourselves. But then it's very clear, privacy basically meant there are decisions that you take about which the state has no interest whatsoever. That is out with the boundaries of state intervention, you're on your own, mate. (laughs) Now, that flies completely against all of these notions of the state setting up justice frameworks. But frankly, I really think it's where the decision about abortion needs to sit. It's outside of what the state wants or thinks it's appropriate. It should be your own private decision. And then there's an issue for the state about how it enables the enacting of that decision which may be through funding or the provision of clinics or or whatever. But we have to come back to this notion that this should be a private decision. Where Roe versus Wade compromised on that was that it said, well, it's going to be like that until the fetus is really capable of being born alive. And we will say that that's the third trimester. But even then, it didn't say you can't do Mm. it. It just basically said, well, we have to be taking that into consideration Mm. a bit. And so different things came in. So I'm a much greater fan of the US legislation now than I used to be, having started to think about it much more in terms of this sense of what privacy really means. Um, Okay. I want to ask you a few, um, I don't know, prickly, difficult questions. Um, yeah, on, on issues that on issues that are quite pointed in 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 the 21st century let's put it like that the first thing i want to ask you about is the issue of buffer zones around abortion clinics now back when i was editor of spike i published things in favor of buffer zones including by you and other pieces by people who said can't have this it's a restriction on the right to protest it's intolerable uh, and so on 
And it's something which I have tussled with enormously over the years. I think I fall down more on your side, which is that this is not the realm for political protest. That's a different sphere of life. And also the right to protest is not absolute in the way that other rights are. But I wanted to ask you, just in light of some of the things you've said today, so you've made the case very, very convincingly that abortion is not just a health concern, but also brings in so many other important facets of human life, the right to make a choice, the right to autonomy, the right to be a sovereign individual. So does that not also mean that an abortion clinic is not like another clinic? Or is it the case that once we've made a decision as a society that women have the right to access this health provision, that in that realm, so for example, many of the clinics that you yourself oversaw through through BPAS, that that realm is off limits because what's happening in there is not the political discussion, not the autonomous decision-making, but the final product, which is the woman acted upon what she's done. So how, how, how do you balance that out between recognizing that abortion is more than a health procedure, but also arguing that it should be protected from the political to and fro of protests outside parliament, for example? Honestly, this is one of the reasons why I think that the issue is so challenging and so multifaceted and why in the 40 years or so now that I've been working in the the, the field in one way or, or another, I have never got bored with it once <laughs> because it manifests itself on so many different layers. Because, you know, on one sense, abortion is a vast moral, ethical, philosophical, religious, abstract issue. And then on another, it's a medical procedure that impacts really minutely on a woman's day-to-day existence. And here is where the whole things get really kind of piled in together. Um, And I felt very conflicted about it, very much in the reasons that you presented it. But you have to think about it like this, I think. You know, abortion, as I've said, I, I, I think people hustle and wrestle with it morally, it is, you know, it's got importance on a whole number of various different levels. But a woman who is turning up at a clinic for counselling or for a procedure is not presenting as representative of any moral or political or abstract viewpoint. She is presenting as a patient to obtain medical care. And I have really turned myself inside out looking at how this should play out because in my heart of hearts, I really want to bend the stick towards people's freedom to speak and people's freedom of protest. And I think BPAS in particular was a very tolerant organisation. And for years we had, it would typically be three or four elderly people turning up outside a clinic, praying, doing the rosary beads and all of this, that and the other. And in certain areas, the clinic staff would make them a cup of tea 
and go out. We knew who they were. They were not doing any harm. And in recent years, that situation really changed where the protests became obstructive in the broad sense, maybe not in the legal sense, I don't know, but they became obstructive to patients who were trying to access medical care. And that's basically when it became intolerable to have them within a certain distance of the clinic. And when they started to argue with me that they weren't even protesting because abortion, to use the words of one person I was debating, abortion, they said, protests itself. They are there to stop women from having abortions. That was the point where, for me, the shutters came down. They basically said, well, if that's what you're actually doing, if you see your job as being there, is not demonstrating to the world, not having an argument on the abstracts, you are there to stop the abortion from taking place, then basically you can F off and do it somewhere else. (laughs) And, you know, I think that that's fair enough. And I stand by that. I think that's very convincing. And uh, one of the things that helped to change my thinking on this was, was when I witnessed a protest outside a planned parenthood clinic in New York City. And it was priests and monks largely who were whispering very intensely in the ears of women who were walking on the street towards the clinic. And that's where I recognize very much what you're describing, which is that this is these women were not going to these clinics as a political statement. They were not saying anything about ethics or morality or the political situation in relation to abortion. They were trying to access a perfectly legal, perfectly safe health procedure And so for that kind of pressure to be put on them at that moment veered absolutely into the realm of harassment rather than into in the realms of political discussion and and political engagement. So I think that's, that's a very, you, you've put that very convincingly. Okay. Another difficult topic, but it would be absolutely remiss of me not to ask you about this is the transgender issue. And the transgender issue has thrown, (laughs) um, It seems to me, I mean, there's an argument you made very recently, which is that pregnancy, unlike almost everything else, just calls so starkly into question the idea that everything is socially constructed, everything is fluid, sex is a myth and gender is the king and, and or, or queen, I suppose, or, or neither king nor queen, I suppose. But in pregnancy more than anything else is, as you've argued, it, it, it resides in mature female physiology. So this is a, a fundamentally female experience. Even if you say, I'm a man, If you get pregnant, that's an experience of mature female physiology. So I just want to ask you, without wanting you to be branded a turf or subjected to a witch hunt or any of those other unpleasant experiences that women often encounter when they criticize some of this stuff, what do you think have been the negative, the potentially negative impacts of the politics of identity and and more specifically the politics of gender fluidity? on the idea of a woman's right to choose and on the idea of uh, abortion rights more broadly? Well, I just think that this is an issue that probably or the, the debates that I've been involved in probably really demonstrate the way in which 
many of these issues, controversies about trans really reside much more for trans activists who are not actually experiencing the issues themselves. To explain what I mean by that, when I was at BPAS, um, I started getting some correspondence and challenged on platforms about why we were referring to it as a women's service. And there were two reasons why I felt it was very important that we retained that description of abortion as something that impacts on women. Firstly, the one that you identify, it's the truth. The pregnancy is experienced by a sexually mature human female. It's the reproductive function of a human female. And so it seems silly to avoid that. And secondly, it's important because one of the things about abortion is that it attracts a certain amount of stigma. One of the reasons why organisations like BPAS exist is because the NHS has never really been able to comfortably integrate termination of pregnancy services with all the other stuff that it does. And the reason for that is because it's a woman's service that challenges the social role that women should neatly fit into, which is, you know, antenatal clinics, birthing centres are all about celebrating what women naturally do. And abortion was kind of women not going down that particular route. But, you know, when we talk to people in the in the clinics, and I asked them how many people were presenting who didn't identify as uh, as women, we had to face up to the fact that increasingly there are more mm. people coming to BPAS who don't identify as women. That's absolutely the case now with this new generation. How many complaints had we had about it? Zero. And the reason for that is because when you actually practically run an abortion service, you go out of your way to find out how people want to be referred to, mm. how they want to talk about things. Do they use fetus or baby? And you reflect language back at them. It is not bloody rocket science. <laughs> it's what you do. You know, someone who's having an abortion because of a fetal anomaly is in a very different position to somebody who's having an abortion uh, eight weeks of pregnancy because they simply don't want to be pregnant. And so you reflect language back at them. And our staff are completely used to doing that, I think. So the complaints become a very staged thing mm. from activists outside the organisation. And I think that sometimes what happens when you politically stage things you end up doing a disservice to the people who are actually using the service itself. And so in my mind, it was all about keeping things simple. Where, how things will continue, now I'm no longer part of the provider club, I really don't know, but I really hope it stays the same. I'm very encouraged that BPAS to this point 
has continued to retain the women, the language of women's rights, because I think it's very important. Yeah, I think the language of women and women's rights is actually more important now than it's been for a very long time, precisely because that those words are under so much attack. And the ability of women to talk about themselves and what they might need that is specific to their own experience has been so attacked by some of the identitarian arguments that have come up over the past few years. Well, I think that point is very important. And I think that there's also um, a bit of a bubble thing where people who identify themselves as progressives live in this self-reflecting world and don't appreciate that the rest of the world really isn't like that. I go to a gym in Faversham that, you know, I've been today, it has a sign saying ladies changing room and a sign saying gentlemen's changing room. You know, that is how a very large part of the country is. That's the way it really goes. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, Anne, my final question. This is a ridiculously large issue to raise in a final question, but we'll we'll do our best. I want to ask you about conscience, because one of the things that I think, one of the uh, arguments that you've made, which I think is incredibly important, is that you've defended the right of pro-life people to speak, to not be censored on campus, for example, to not be demonized and pushed out of polite society and no platforms, etc. You've also defended the right of doctors to, or the existence of conscience clauses, which give doctors the right to say, I don't want to perform abortions. These really are an affront to my moral convictions, and therefore I'm not going to do this particular procedure. And I want to ask you about the importance of conscience across the board, because one of the arguments you make in your book is that in a world where we uphold the moral autonomy of women seeking abortion, we cannot but accept that a doctor's objection from carrying out abortions from a place of conscience is very important too. So to what extent do you think conscience is one of the key Uh, principles that we need to embrace as a society in relation to the abortion issue, but also in relation to other issues too? Well, uh, for me, it it is absolutely paramount because I think it speaks to someone's sense of deciding what is right and what is wrong for them. And I think that in the same way that I've talked about um, women deciding for them what is right in the intricate circumstances of their own lives and their own beliefs. So also, I don't, I, I don't think it's a good thing to uh, divorce doctors from that. And the reason why I say that is because I really don't feel that a world where doctors are called on to just follow instructions is a very good world to be in because who devises the guidelines, who works out what's clinical, what's ethical, whatever. And ultimately, I think we want a world where doctors say no I am not prepared to do this because I think that it's wrong. And the price that we have to pay for that 
is that it may cause problems for some of us who want to access things that some doctors may disapprove of. So the challenge is how do we recruit and convince clinical staff that terminating women's pregnancies at their request is the right thing to do? And, you know, I I don't think that's a challenge that we should shy away from. Some of my my colleagues were absolutely horrified at the idea of conscience clauses being allowed into the law in the Republic of Ireland. And the argument was, well, you know, you will never get doctors who will do abortions then. And actually, you know, it's the same in the north of Ireland now. And it it is not the case, you know. I think that probably it would have been far more difficult to get the law changed had there not been a conscience clause in. Because I think that there are way more people who maybe think like I do that, well, I would be prepared to do this, but I think that my colleagues must have the ability, if they seriously think that abortion is totally wrong, then they should not be compelled to to do that. And I have to say, I was driven even more into this position recently where I was involved in a working party of individuals, mainly academics actually, who were talking about the implementation of conscience uh, clauses and where they caused problems and where they didn't. And hearing people talk about uh, how conscience clauses were in cases of uh, assisted dying. Mm. And the, and I'm saying this in scare quotes, the problem Mm. of doctors exercising freedom of conscience when it came to countries such as Canada, where there is legislation that allows assisted dying and the problems that might be caused where a doctor refuses to assist dying if there is no other doctor who is available. And it really made me think that if you are a doctor and you seriously Mm. believe that what you are engaged in is reprehensibly morally or murder, to be compelled to do that is unthinkable. So, sorry, I'm going off on one about it, but I really do feel that strongly. We do not want to live in a world where doctors are compelled to do things. We saw that in the 1930s and it did not end well. And Friday, thank you very much indeed. Thank you, Brendan. Thank you for listening to The Brendan O'Neill Show. We'll be back with another guest and more discussion. Don't forget to subscribe. And in the meantime, keep reading Spiked at www.spiked-online.com.